Hey everyone, welcome to the show. You're listening to Can I, the Latchel podcast named for the acronym Continuous and Never Ending Improvement. At Latchel, we have a deep belief that you can't get better by staying the same. And our podcast is here to give you the tools and resources you need to achieve healthy growth. As a Y Combinator backed company, we know what it takes to have rapid, accelerated growth, and we want to pass our learnings along to you. At Latchel, we help property managers and landlords grow and scale by taking over 24 7 maintenance operations. We've developed an innovative mix of software and on demand support to help do that. Each week on this show, we bring on industry experts and we dive into the topics that'll help you shape your business. Welcome to the show. Let's get going. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to our session on uh, building a high growth company using principles from Amazon. And for a little bit of background on Latchel, it all started about three years ago. I was working at Amazon. My family needed help running their own Uh, our own personal family portfolio. And when I stepped in to help out, very quickly realized how big of a headache and how time-consuming maintenance coordination could be. That's when I called up Ethan and we teamed up with our other co-founder, Julian, to start building a solution. And now we handle maintenance for nearly 40,000 units across the U.S. And the way we got to 41,000 units across the U.S. in such a short period of time is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Oh, we're at 41 now. Nice. We're at 41 now. Yeah. So let me tell a story actually first to kick us off. Um, This is a story about when Will first started having these like maintenance issues with the property management company that came down from his grandfather. Um, Will leaves this part out sometimes in the introduction, but his grandfather had turned 92 and at 92 decided, or was it 93? It's 92. 92. 92. At 92 decides... uh, you know, I'm gonna, it's time for me to retire. So <laughs> had a long working career in property management. Um, but uh, yeah, so Will was dealing with all these maintenance issues, um, you know, kind of contacted me, got involved, realized this was like a common problem among property management um, companies everywhere. But what Will came to me when he had kind of decided, you know, we're gonna start a company to solve this problem before we even knew exactly what our solution or product we were going to build was going to be, he came to me with a set of leadership principles, many of which were pulled from Amazon. And so, well, maybe you can actually talk about why that was one of the first things you did in starting Latchel. Why did you start with leadership principles? A lot of it had to do with my time at Amazon. Like, I, I know there's a lot of controversy about the the culture at Amazon, but personally, I, I absolutely loved the the Amazon working culture. I love how we communicated, how we operated, and uh, over time, while there, I realized a lot of Amazon's actual competitive advantage was their culture, which is heavily derived from their leadership principles. Uh, it was a everyday part of the language at Amazon. People would reference the leadership principles and giving feedback and, and how they made decisions, why they're making decisions. It was also something that the company took incredibly seriously. There was a, a team of people looking at how to you know, categorize the leadership principles and help uh, inform hiring decisions even better as the company scaled and grew. I, I was a um, 
just before I left, I became an Amazon bar raiser and done hundreds of interviews. And that was also like very deep and impactful for me in making the leadership principles a core part of a company's being as a, a company's core. Can, can you, act, you said you were a bar raiser at Amazon. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is, what that means? Yeah, Amazon has this bar raiser program to ensure everyone coming in to the company meets the hiring bar. Now, I'm sure everyone who's ever hired somebody knows how painful it can be when you have a need and you have this empty seat that you need to fill. And basically, you're doing the work if if you don't have somebody else doing it and you just want to get that filled as quickly as possible. It's very easy to you know, compromise on your, your principles or your values in order just to you know, alleviate that burning pain. So the Bar Razor program was designed to uh, combat that. It would be a third party, someone who's not in the department, not actually feeling that burning pain. It's also very experienced with interviews. Like um, I did well over 100 interviews in a year um, in my final year at Amazon. And a lot of it was part of this, this Bar Razor program. And you basically are sitting in to make sure, does this person meet the Amazon leadership principles overall? If the department that they're joining disappeared or had to be changed, are they adaptable and flexible enough to move somewhere completely different? And also uh, why it's called bar raising is to make sure that they meet a very specific technical bar, um, meaning is anybody currently performing that job? Stack rank them and figure out where is that 50% mark. And you want every single person coming into the company to be as good, if not better, than at least 50% of the people already doing that, that job in that company. And mathematically, over time, if everyone is always 50, better than at least 50%, that bar raises and gets harder and harder and harder. A lot of people who are very tenured at Amazon would say, like, I wouldn't meet the hiring bar today if I applied again, just because <laughs> the, the, the quality of candidates has moved up so much. I think that makes a lot of sense, like, once you're at a certain size, right? So for Amazon, the way they can kind of continue improving their team, their hiring, their, their culture is benchmarking you hire the person that's you know better than the other 50 percent and that bar raises i think it's a little bit harder you know for smaller companies um startups too that's lateral included uh you know when we started out it's not like we had anyone to like measure the bar against um i think a lot of our customers too they're not quite at the size where they have you know, 20 property managers and they're hiring their next and can say, okay, are you better than at least 10? So how do you handle that as a small company, as a startup? That's where the leadership principles come in. And that's why when I, I approached you, I started with just this set of leadership principles. You have certain behaviors and characteristics that you want people to, to exhibit and have. And as long as they're meeting a sufficient number of those, you should bring them into the company. Um, I, as soon as you have like two or three people though in a particular role, that is a time that you should be thinking about, are they better than at least, you know, are they, are they matching or at least better than the, the bottom two people? Um, that way you can still get better over time. Yeah, you know what I hear a lot and uh, I'm trying to balance, you know, is the person you're bringing in 50% better than the rest versus the conventional wisdom, which is hire people that are better than you, which is almost always like impossible, especially when you're starting out and you know exactly how something's supposed to work, you know exactly what you want to happen and you need, you need it to happen exactly that way. How do you like 
weight those two things. Like, sure, you have you you meet these leadership principles, but like you need to be me, be better or be better than me. You know what I mean? So that's where I would caution somebody. It's like you have to think about what your goals are specifically for your business. Do you want to remain a you know boutique, high service, high touch, more con- consultative, or do you want a high growth business? And I, I, it is a um, I think it's a cop-out to say you can't have both. I mean, you certainly can. But if you're going to have both and you need somebody who's better than you at every single thing you do, then they're going to have to be highly compensated. It's really hard to get somebody who's much better than you and also incredibly cost-effective for whatever that role is. So you need to think about specific positions, specific skill sets, like, and look at people who are better at you at that specific skill set and maybe not better than you at every single thing that you do. Uh, There are people that are much better than I am at like staying focused on a particular set of tasks and knocking those out. Like I am much more of a systematic type person. So I'm not very well suited for like very um, specific linear uh, progression and completion of tasks. Other people are absolutely phenomenal at it. So I'm looking for that. I'm looking for people better at me at that but I don't want somebody who's better at me, better than me at that uh, specific task completion and also better that, than me at systematic thinking and also better at me at the strategic thinking for the business and also better at, yeah, it gets, it gets too hard to hire people that way. I think one of the interesting things when, when we talk about business scalability, right? If you're building something that's high growth, you're adding, you know, you're doubling maybe your unit count every few months when you're growing at that type of speed, um, and even if you're not growing that fast, even if you're you're following a slower growth, but your intention is to be bigger, you need to have people on the team that can grow with your company, right? And we kind of get to talking about, well, is the way you're bringing in people, is your team itself scalable? I look at the leadership principles and you almost those kind of become like the lens that everyone on the team needs to look at everything with Absolutely. in order to think like you, not maybe do exactly what you would do, but to think like you think. The, the best description I've heard of Amazon is it's the company is designed to be scaffolding around Jeff Bezos's brain. And I really liked that, that description and the leadership principles are really helpful for thinking of it that way. You pro- we provided this set of leadership principles for ways to think about problems. And when you're applying a solution on the fly, you use those leadership principles as guidance. So that way, everyone on the team can make decisions on their own without having to consult me or Ethan or even their manager. And they, they, you're allowed to move much faster. Part of being a high growth, high scalability business is you, you can't be involved in every single decision. And if you want to be involved in every single decision, then you're going to be slowing down your company's growth. You're going to be slowing down the ability for your company to get to the scale that you want. So you have to provide a framework for people to to be able to make decisions on their own and let go that responsibility to let other people make those decisions. So when we look at Amazon and Amazon's growth trajectory, I mean, Amazon's been around like a long time, right? So things probably looked different like year one, two, three than they do now. But can you talk about the things that have remained core to the way Amazon has developed and has allowed this just rapid continued growth, even like at the scale they're at now? And what were the common things 10 years ago 
and what they're doing now, or even like 20 years ago and what they're doing now. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of that is codified in the leadership principles. So Amazon has a long list, just like Latchel has a long list of leadership principles. Uh, it does take a bit of effort, though, to think about which ones are the absolute must-haves for somebody coming into the company and which ones are the things that will grow and develop and get better. And those things that have remained the same and have been unchanging throughout the time are all those must-haves. For Amazon, it was customer obsession. It is customer obsession. So they're always an incredibly customer-obsessed company. Their mission statement is to become Earth's most customer-centric company. So that's everything they do is driving towards making it a better experience for any one of their customers. They also like to... Uh, Actually, let me stop you for a second, because I think that's really interesting. So I actually didn't know that about Amazon. You said their mission is to be the most customer-centric company in the world. Earth's most customer-centric company. Earth. Earth. So, yeah. so not Mars. Once we colonize Mars, like don't care about that. But okay, cool. So I think the interesting thing is like if you if you ask me, oh, guess what Amazon's mission is, I would say like to offer everything online as cheap as possible but that's yeah that's not it, 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 it they're not trying to just simply offer everything online no they just want to be customer obsessed and be the the best in the world at being uh customer centric and customer obsessed yeah it just so happens that the way they do it is by selling things online yeah but they also well they do a lot more now yeah, right now they, yeah <laughs> Before they but, went, they just sold books. Now they sell everything and also offer web services and servers. And shipping services and uh, online video. Yeah, it's, it, it's, if they had narrowed that focus to just sell books online, it would be that they, they would have stopped growing a long time ago. And the, the only way you're going to continue to grow like that is to you know, stretch beyond your comfort zone. Um, yeah, a, a lot of that has to do with the other leadership principles that like really help them grow. It's think big, um, and having a bias for action is, are other things that, that are huge and driving for them. Uh, Amazon, one of the things that we talked about a lot is a willingness to be misunderstood for a long time, uh, misunderstood by your customers, by shareholders, uh, by the by the markets and a analysts, like. You have to have the bravery and the boldness to make bets that may not make sense in the short term, but over the long run will pay off and improve, provide very, very large dividends. Can you explain what you mean about like being misunderstood? Like, is there a specific example you have in mind where people didn't get it, but it made sense for Amazon? Yeah, well, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of situations like that. So one of the more famous examples is when Amazon first introduced reviews online. And when that first happened, uh, a lot of book publishers were like, what, do you not understand how to sell books? Why would you put these reviews that are public? Do you not want to sell these books? But Amazon understood that that's more customer centric, more customer obsessed. You let people get as much information as they can in order to make that buying decision. Uh, another thing is even Amazon's last mile, which I was a big part of, uh, you can go back years uh, to Amazon's uh, 
basically articles written about Amazon that are criticizing Amazon for even trying to attempt it. It doesn't make sense. You know, UPS and FedEx are so huge. U.S. Postal Service is so great. Why would you even try to compete? And Amazon's still working towards it. Uh, grocery delivery is another example. They've been doing it for a long time. Haven't been successful yet in you know, coming up with a very, very scalable, successful model. But they're willing to lose money on it for a long time to try to uh, get that right solution because eventually it will pay off. Sure. I mean, for Amazon, you know, they can afford to lose lots of money until they figure it out. For most businesses, uh, you know, you need to probably be a, be a little more cautious with how you spend. But I want to come back to customer obsession because it sounds like that was sort of primary must-have for Amazon and things kind of developed around that, being customer obsessed, that being the main leadership principle. It's actually one of our, it's our core leadership principle as well, be customer obsessed. And I think the property management industry is really interesting because in a way, well, like for Latchel, for example, we have multiple different customers, sometimes with varying interests. So we work with property managers, right? To coordinate maintenance. Um, of course, like, you know, if you're a property manager listening in, we know that you want maintenance to be done in the most convenient way possible for you. Um, that's why we make an effort so that uh, for every 100 units you have, we're cutting down the time you spend on maintenance to 15 minutes a day because we know that's what's going to be convenient and what lets you focus on the things you need to focus on. We know it's important that we're transparent with everything we're doing and that we're affordable. And then when you look at the contractor networks we work with, they actually have their own needs too. And we need to be customer obsessed about their needs. They also want things done conveniently. And that sometimes means scheduling for them, right? So that they don't have to go call the tent and get scheduling done. We're going to provide that for them. And they just click a button. And the tenant too, right? Which sometimes can be uh, misaligned interests with maybe the, the contractor or tradesman we're sending out the property manager, the tenant wants everything done now. Well, that's not always good for the property manager or even like, you know, a, a vendor that you're sending out. Like if I have to do it now and it's 10 PM, I'm going to pay more money. Way better to have someone on the phone troubleshoot it or like deescalate the problem so it can be taken care of during business hours when things are cheaper, right? So you kind of have these like varying interests, but you have to be customer obsessed to the three. How do you kind of like, how would you talk to a, one of our customers or even like, you know, our team about weighing that customer obsession for property managers? You know, they have tenants that they may, maybe need to think about being customer obsessed with. They have property owners that they're working with investors that they need to be customer obsessed about and they'll have their own contractor network. So what would you say to them about how to weight that customer obsession and how do you actually build the comp a property management company that's customer obsessed? Yeah. I think the first thing, which is probably one of the most difficult things to do in property management is to align interests as much as possible. Like you want to set up your business so that you as the property manager and the property owner that is your client, you, at minimum, your interests need to absolutely be aligned. If, if you're making money when they're losing money, like that just breeds animosity, mistrust, and is probably going to hurt the relationship in the long, long run. But there's also things to align interests for tenants and vendors as well to make sure that everyone's getting that same need fundamentally met. Um, now, 
being customer obsessed doesn't let mean letting your customer walk all over you. It doesn't mean you know giving away the farm. Ultimately, in order to be customer obsessed and maintain that customer obsession, you have to be profitable. So if you have a tenant that is not you know, respecting the property, it's over requesting maintenance and just causing a, a headache, it's better for the overall company to let that customer go. Like Amazon was not afraid to fire customers. If there are people who are abusing the return policy, you will be banned from purchasing on Amazon. You will not be allowed to purchase on Amazon. There's no law that says everybody must be able to do business with Amazon. Just like there's no law saying that everybody needs to have to live in your properties. Like you, you're able to screen tenants, you're able to evict tenants when they, when they don't uh, cause, or when they're not abiding by the rules or paying rent or whatever else it may be. So I think it's uh, really important to first get that alignment of needs, but also have your very clear standards of like what I will and will not do and be consistent in how you apply that and, and have that transparency to show like, you're not meeting these rules, you're not meeting these expectations that are set out in the lease or whatever else it may be. And this is what I do with everybody. As, and now, now we're on a, a plan to move, move somebody out. Yeah, it's a good example too with like the property investor that, you know, turns you into their, or they think you're their like personal assistant now on all things related to your, to their property, which you don't want to set that expectation. That's not customer obsessed when you're neglecting, you know, 50 other clients of yours for, for the one that wants all your attention. Um, yeah, exactly. To your point, Will, you need to be willing to fire them if, you know, it's, if they're a drain on your ability to be customer obsessed. Um, I, I always think it's interesting to do analyses on on the time and effort required uh, for a particular customer, a particular account versus the revenue that is coming in from that from that account. And it's very often that there's a huge misalignment. The people that are taking up the very most largest amount of your time usually represent a very small portion of the overall por portfolio. I mean, there's obviously exceptions to that rule, and but if whenever you're finding yourself in that case it is the more customer obsessed thing to do to tie it and that relationship that customer obsession doesn't have to mean on every single individual you are giving them the best service. Sometimes the best thing to do for the company is to end, end service. Now, like at what point are you reading the pattern? And it's not like this one off thing where like, I'm not going to change just for you. Cause that hurts my other customers. When does it become a pattern that you have to address. So I'm, I'm kind of asking more actually for obviously if all your customers are coming back and they're all saying the same thing, okay, you have your pattern, but in cases where it's not super obvious, like what, what did Amazon do to find these like patterns? What Amazon did is, I guess it's two things is to, to try to separate signal from noise. Like any one off is not, it's not necessarily a pattern, but anytime that there's a problem, you still want to do like a, a deep dive root cause analysis, figure out what happened and what went wrong. And is that what's emblematic of a more systematic issue? Like it, it's very easy to get caught up in symptoms. Like, you know, this, I, I missed this call or I, I didn't uh, uh, approve a particular maintenance yeah, so what, what, correctly. What, what, 
what elements in the culture of the company stopped people? I, I think this is like a great example. Cause like, you know, you're at work, you're doing your thing, something happens, you react. And in that reaction mode, most people are addressing the symptom. What about the culture of Amazon created that? Let's look at root cause. Is there like a leadership principle? 